This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to analyst and writer Hassan Hassan. He's going to be speaking about the re-emergence of ISIS in Iraq and Syria. Now, you might have seen for a while, every time there's some kind of ISIS clash somewhere in, in the deserts of Syria or around Mosul or wherever in Iraq, people say, right, ISIS are back, ISIS are back. Um, th- that wasn't exactly the case, but now things are definitely looking like they are gaining steam again. They never went away, despite what Trump said, despite what various world leaders are saying. Sure, they lost their territory, they lost Raqqa, Mosul, and then, you know, finished off in Baguz, but actually, a lot of ISIS fighters got away. So yeah, uh, Hassan Hassan is gonna be speaking to us about that. And do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popular front. So, so there's a lot of people have been saying for a while now, like ISIS are on their way back, you know, and it, it didn't really look like that was the case for a while. It was kind of sporadic attacks. But now, you know, you've just written this report and it looks like actually they, they are kind of trying to make a comeback. Maybe you can uh, talk to us about that. What are they up to? Yeah, I think that's a good way of uh, putting it. Uh, they are on their way back. Uh, they're not there yet, uh, which is kind of a subtle uh, mix between uh, recovery, insurgency, uh, uh, resurgence of the camp, the ISIS insurgency uh, in the past few months. Uh, but it's not there yet. I think it's still a uh, recent uh, tr- you know, t- trend and they're still trying uh, to, uh, to come back. And uh, obviously they benefited from a series. We can talk about all the different uh, developments that happened since October last year. Um, so in this report, what I tried to do is to go methodically back to the end of the uh, physical caliphate uh, in March last year and trace how they were actually uh, weakened for uh, the best part of last year and uh, what are the signs of that weakness. Uh, I gave an example, for example, in Iraq, uh, an operation or a series of operations, multi-phase uh, campaign conducted by the United States and the US-led coalition, uh, the Iraqis, to uh, uh, conduct attacks against ISIS in areas that the Americans thought ISIS still uh, exists in rural areas, remote areas in, in Iraq and uh, the borders between Iraq and Syria. And the, and the campaign was called the, Vic- the Will of Victory. Uh, and uh, I think it was, it was kind of a wild, it was a massive uh, success, uh, and ISIS was kept under pressure until things started to kind of move uh, differently. Right, and what have they actually been doing? I think what was it last week or maybe even this week? I've lost track. But they they were doing attacks quite recently, weren't they? There was a big shootout, I think, in Iraq and in Syria. Yeah, this was all recent. Uh, actually, just uh, April. Uh, you know, since April, they've conducted some. Uh, High, large-scale coordinated attacks in some uh, parts of Syria and some parts of Iraq. Uh, specifically, uh, the border areas between Iraq and Syria and the, what we call the Badi or the Syrian desert. Uh, so that these are the areas from the countryside of Homs, uh, the desert uh, areas around Palmyra, all the way to the Iraqi-Syrian border. It's a vast area. Uh, this is usually an area that is controlled mostly, for the most part, by uh, Hezbollah by Iranian uh, proxies uh, in, in that region, as well as obviously the Syrian regime and uh, Russia, uh, with a small pocket of uh, U.S. Uh, forces uh, in, in that area, in the, uh, you know, in the, between Iraq and Syria and Jordan. And then uh, uh, in central uh, eastern Iraq, so from north of Samarra uh, to Diyala, uh, and mostly, uh, really mostly in Salahuddin and uh, Diyala and Kirkuk. So who are these new ISIS fighters? Well, not new, but who, who are, are they guys that didn't go to Baguz and they managed to set up elsewhere? Or are they guys that escaped from Baguz? And like, who are they? Do we have any idea? Uh, well, the Iraqis like to call them in Syria as well, the remnants of ISIS. So these are the leftovers uh, from the caliphate and people who uh, were uh, uh, made it out of, uh, of the caliphate, either uh, went to remote abandoned villages in Iraq or the desert areas in Syria, or went underground the sleeper cells. And now they found a new uh, opportunity to kind of come back, uh, start uh, to conduct some uh, attacks here and there. 
but these attacks have been consistent kind of the low level sort of attacks that we saw uh, for the past year or two uh, two in Iraq one year in Syria after the defeat of the caliphate uh, were uh, the you know the usual uh, insurgency tactics like ambushes assassinations targeted uh, killings uh, hit and run attacks extortion you know this kind of uh, uh, tactics that they use uh, were in, in kind of spaces and ga- uh, in places where uh, the, Amer- uh, the Iraqis and Americans cannot all all the time, uh, you know, trace them. So uh, this is always uh, kind of work in progress when it comes to the U.S.-led cam- campaign against ISIS. And uh, nobody really believed that uh, they will have a complete success in, in the sense that they eradicate the organization. But something interesting has happened, which is if you if you trace play by play how ISIS was weakened after the territorial uh, the the collapse of the territorial cadre of the, of the organization, uh, that was in and of itself a massive uh, obviously defeat of the organization. But then there was a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of cutting their uh, disrupting their networks, going after their leaders, their remnants, and so on and so forth. And there was really steady progress in my opinion despite the attacks here and there in some areas actually actually isis going to new places uh you know and uh, attacking especially outside iraq and syria uh, that continued and you could see even though that isis uh, internal structures uh in my opinion remained intact for the most part uh, despite the killing of baghdadi despite the killing of uh, senior commanders uh, throughout the years they, they they continue to be able to their remote affiliates uh, in places like uh, you know in North Africa and Afghanistan and elsewhere uh, and uh, they, they kept them basically into their control and that was again in and of itself a massive success for ISIS uh, so you always have this balance of ISIS weakening but at the same time its internal structures remaining lurking waiting for the right moment uh, to jump back in and bounce back. How have they kept those structures intact when so many of them are dead and so many of the seniors have gone? It's all lessons learned. Obviously, ISIS has been uh, in this, um, you know, uh, for for a long time in the Iraq and Syria, but mostly Iraq, and uh, they've experienced uh, some of the same events that happened to them. Uh, over the past five years, so the killings, the decapitation of, uh, of like basically the uh, elimination of their uh, top leadership, uh, the killing of their um, uh, uh, mid-level uh, uh, commanders, but also the loss of ter- uh, territory, uh, the attempts to come back. Uh, so they're basically learning from the same playbook that enabled them to come back after 2008. And uh, I always. Uh, obviously, this is kind of in uh, jihadism study uh, is well known, so there's nothing new there. But back in 2008, when, uh, when there was a conversation between basically the top leader at the time or the leader of the organization, Abu Omar al-Baghdadi, uh, speaking to his war minister, Abu Hamza al-Muhajir, telling him, uh, you know, after they lost Fallujah and then they lost Mosul, uh, they said, uh, he, you know, Abu Omar al-Muhajir, Abu Omar al-Baghdadi, uh, spoke to uh, to his uh, war minister and said, we can no longer stand and fight in Iraq for more than 15 minutes, so we have to change the way we operate. Uh, because before, previously, they operated as a regular uh, jihadi organization, hitting, uh, you know, street to street, fighting um, uh, suicide operations and so on and so forth in, in Iraq and uh, at the height of the civil war and the Iraq war uh, before that. Uh, so now they found themselves in a profoundly hostile environment where uh, even the Sunni uh, militants who used to work alongside them turned against them. And that was a, a, a profound defeat for the organization, deep, uh, you know, uh, much more profound than the current defeat uh, they faced or the defeat they faced uh, a year ago uh, in Iraq and Syria. Uh, that meant that they had very little uh, manpower, uh, they were disrupted, uh, their internal structures were weakened, and years later, after 2008, specifically in 2010, they lost 
the top leader, Abu Omar uh, al-Baghdadi and his war minister. And now, uh, basically, they had these years to learn how to come back and live and, and survive this hostile uh, environment. So to them, this is not really the worst that ever happened to them. And they learned from the lessons. And they kept their internal structures because they knew and anticipated that this is what, what's going to happen to them at some point. Right, and is uh, the new leader, I forget his name, but he is he really calling the shots, do you think, or is it people around him that are keeping this together? Yeah, so we don't know much about the new leader, uh, Abu Brahim. The, 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 uh, there are speculations in Iraq that he's the same one uh, that uh, was suspected to be the next leader after Baghdadi died or would die at the time before. Uh, Abdullah Qardash or um, Haji Abdullah, uh, who's also from uh, Talafa, which is a kind of a Turkmen-dominated or Turkmen-majority uh, town mm. in the north of where dozens of ISIS fighters and, and, and mid-level commanders, but also uh, uh, top leaders, uh, hailed from that town. So, uh, if we judge the organization, or the, if we if he's the same kind of leader as Abu Bakr Baghdadi, then it's yes and no. Yes, in the sense that everything that the organization does uh, is supervised by the, by the leader. He can't do everything, so it's not kind of day-to-day organization and uh, organizational kind of decisions, but he pretty much has a hands-on approach to the organization. Right, and how are they existing? Because they're all splintered apart now, you know. There's no Raqqa... There's no, there's no general command base or anything like that. There's no Mosul for them anymore. How are they managing to communicate and do, you know, do these increasingly violent attacks, even though they're basically on the run? So this is an interesting uh, question, something to kind of, uh, you know, observe because if you look at the, the timeline, timeline, uh, timeline has been short since the collapse of the organization to now. You can pretty much see. Uh, how the organization survives, what causes the organization to survive, what feeds the organization, how it thrives. Because when we were surprised by ISIS, the world surprised, not us, uh, people who watched the Syrian and Iraqi conflicts, uh, by, by the rise of ISIS in 2014, a lot of people started asking questions. Where did, where did this organization come from? What it wants? And so on and so forth. And many people kind of started to focus on the ideology. They went and read books or spoke to some people uh, or watched some videos and tried to kind of explain the appeal of the organization. And obviously, it takes so many different things to uh, factors for an organization like that to capture uh, one third of Iraq and almost half of Syria in almost no time, right? Mm-hmm. At the time. But you can, you can, uh, you can pretty much kind of now after five years or six years start to understand if you follow the follow events on the ground today and see how ISIS is uh, bringing itself back from the defeat from the bottom uh, and try to crawl back into the to the the, to the, to the peak again from the valley to the peak from the from the bottom to the uh, to the to the highs of Iraq and Syria and you can see that's all one thing, which is a security vacuum. The security vacuum that exists in both Iraq and Syria today is what's enabled ISIS to move around, uh, operate in parts of Iraq and Syria. And slowly you can see that gap is open and wider and wider, almost by, by uh, you know every month. Despite the fact that ISIS, uh, and especially after that kind of weakening started to uh, be reversed, uh, the weakness, weakness of ISIS over the past year uh, and how ISIS survived that weakness and started there there was a series of openings that enabled ISIS to rise uh, to rise again uh, to raise its head again essentially so you can see why I think the, the security uh, the security vacuum exists uh, but at the same time the Americans and the Iraqis and everyone was trying to keep the pressure uh, so ISIS doesn't exploit that vacuum uh, quite well. Now, there are other factors that come 
in my in my opinion later on and how isis exploits that security vacuum it might be grievances it might be uh, problems in iraq and syria it might be the conflicts and the political stagnation that uh, dominated uh, the iraqi political landscape since october until two days ago when they formed the new government so all these factors enable isis to you know start uh, you know moving its, its head a little bit kind of raising its head and moving a little bit and when uh, and this is another one final point on that is that when isis uh, starts to be seen as coming back the intimidation comes back immediately with it so that means people on the ground in parts of iraq and syria start to be scared that isis might be come back and that means uh, vengeance, uh, retribution, and so on and so forth, uh, is something they would consider if they want to cooperate with the Iraqi government. They have to now think twice, three times, and even more, you know, many times uh, before they start to cooperate with the Iraqi government against any signs that ISIS back uh, in these areas. And consequently, by extension, once ISIS start to intimidate people, its mobility and visibility become becomes even. Uh, more uh, and and uh, and so on and so forth. You know that's how kind of slowly and gradually comes back. Yeah. Um, and how are they operating? Are they are they getting support from sympathisers? Are they blending in with the locals? Because I'm just thinking like these guys have been doing some bigger attacks, um, and they need you know they need the weapons and they need to you know I don't know provide whatever they need for the fighters. How are they managing to do that when they, you know, such a close eye is on them? Sure, I mean, they, obviously they're not starting from scratch. Mm. Uh, they had weapons. Uh, some uh, reports I heard from the ground is that ISIS uh, has something called uh, um, I forgot the Arabic word now at the moment, but basically kind of to spot uh, kind of geo location of certain weapons they buried. Uh, in different parts of Iraq and Syria. And uh, they have database essentially to kind of, uh, you know, obviously within with a narrow circle of the organization uh, where they hide their, their weapons. Now, this is not surprising because mm. if you lived uh, such as, you know, such, you know, like I did uh, in, uh, in those parts of Iraq and Syria, and Syria specifically in my case, uh, you know, burying weapons uh, when when there's when there are campaigns by the government to disarm the population, so on and so forth, is kind of a tradition. So people know how to bury weapons, how to hide them uh, when when there's a campaign, and how to find them uh, later on, even if it uh, if it takes them like ten years or and so on and so forth to uh, to go back to it. Uh, obviously, it will be sometimes rusty, but still, uh, you know, up, uh, works. Uh, you know, I've seen these things happening before. So uh, what ISIS does is obviously it has a lot of money that's uh, saved from the time of the caliphate. I remember the time they made tens of tens of millions of dollars, uh, and uh, now a lot of this money uh, is still with them, uh, but they don't have to spend the same amount of money as they did before when they moved in large convoys of uh, kind of uh, to fight and so on and so forth. So basically, they are they have the money. Uh, they are uh, they have the weapons and they have the people they can recruit to do uh, to do things well, the tactics are really kind of uh, uh, there's a long list of tactics they use including using uh, part-timers uh, to uh, conduct certain operations uh, these part-timers uh, they might conduct one operation a year or two uh, you know, it depends, or it's just—it's uh, almost like a mafia. You just do one favor to the organization, and mm. that's it. You probably one of member of your family, and so on and so forth, right? So these things, uh, these things happen, and, and kind of one by one, they—they uh, they demonstrate that they back. And once they back, they can uh, awaken some of their sleeper cells that uh, remain sleeping all this year. Uh, all these years, and, and this is how it works. So they they are moving. It's easy. Uh, we uh, we have uh, some work. Uh, we're going to publish soon also about how their smuggling networks uh, along the borders of Iraq and Syria is actually uh, are actually kind of thriving now. Uh, they're back to being able to kind of uh, move uh, across 
borders, despite uh, you know, despite the control, uh, you know, the militias controlling the Iraqi Syrian borders. Uh, there's increased activities in villages and towns uh, and some and, and parts of Iraq and Syria. These movements are not always violent. So ISIS moving around, speaking to people, uh, sending messages and so on and so forth. This is something that we started to see uh, in recent months. Are they, uh, are they getting new recruits, would you say? Have you seen any evidence of that or is it just the ones that were already there? No, I don't think so. I don't think uh, ISIS, uh, because they, they have uh, small numbers and they benefit now from small numbers. Uh, you can uh, you can discern these things from, uh, you know, obviously speaking to these people, uh, speaking to people on the ground and also listening to, uh, you know, uh, uh, reading and listening to ISIS. Uh, for example, one, um, when they formed their organization in Syria, Jabhat al-Nusra, there was an extensive interview with the leader of uh, Julani at the time he was operating under the kind of the norms of ISIS, uh, despite the ideology being a bit uh, divergent from from ISIS. Mm. But he was operating as a as a kind of a, uh, uh, led by Baghdadi at the time, and his um, uh, tactics included uh, recruiting not higher numbers. They didn't actually want uh, higher numbers, and he said uh, higher numbers are sometimes a liability. So what they focus on uh, quality attacks in different parts of uh, Iraq and Syria to show that they are um, operating in an expansive uh, area, even though sometimes these same attacks are conducted by uh, some of the same groups. Right. Uh, I know it's hard to say, but if you had to estimate how many ISIS fighters that are currently active do you think are left in Iraq and Syria right now? So the estimates now from the UN and uh, something that the Iraqis seem to agree on, which is uh, uh, 18,000 to 20,000 ISIS fighters in both Iraq and Syria. Now, this sounds a lot, but I, I think it's very close uh, if and only if you count uh, all elements of their networks, not just the fighters, not just the people who are members of the organization, people who are part of the network that they rely on. So that would be, like I said, uh, people uh, part-time, like part-times, people who conduct certain operations for them. Uh, they're not necessarily part of the organization. Also, uh, sleepers, and this is kind of back to your, uh, to your point of getting new uh, recruits. Sometimes uh, it's really going back to the same contacts that you had before and uh, using them again uh, as an organization. So these people might be, uh, uh, they believe in the organization, they might, be member, they might be members or not, but they still operate as part of uh, the, the operation of the organization. When ISIS took over parts of Iraq and Syria, the caliphate was not just ISIS, uh, as in the membership was also people that ISIS compelled to work with them. And that's why you saw uh, massive numbers of people. And once that uh, core of the caliphate, the ISIS uh, organization itself, collapsed, uh, you started to see the numbers uh, shrinking all of a sudden and start to see that the numbers are not actually that mass, that many or that big. Uh, so they, uh, you know, they, they have contacts and uh, they're using them. Uh, and as they become more and more visible, uh, they're... Uh, the list of people, like the pool of people they can rely on, uh, becomes bigger and bigger. Right. Um, most of their filmmakers are either dead or in prison now, or their equipment's gone or whatever. So we're not seeing the big, glossy kind of releases that they used to do before, you know, these horrible things where they're torturing people and blah, blah. But they are still releasing media, right? Like, quite often. So... Uh, according to our fellow Dr. Sham Hashimi, for example, he is one of the best, if not the best, uh, ISIS observer on Iraq. And he, his findings that the, one of the findings that the, they are using media and they are uh, using some of the technology, but usually it comes now low quality and the small size of the media itself the media product they produce and that's because they want they don't want to basically transfer media in a kind of a sophisticated way where they have to use certain websites or certain media or they have to move it around so what they use uh, smaller uh, s uh, size 
uh, and it's kind of an easy to upload and and uh, because they feel like they can't they can't do the same uh, work they did before um, so their quality is actually uh, clearly uh, worse uh, poorer than before uh, but they still uh, you know filming through mobiles and uh, cameras and so on and so forth so it's still almost the same uh, but not the same quality and obviously not the same intensity uh, you know things like you know in the past where you saw like uh, ISIS producing a movie uh, or almost a movie like when there's action drama or they burn someone and, and uh, that kind of uh, atrocious, atrocious um, um, uh, footage now what they do is really focus on just documenting how many people they killed. That's really the the, the biggest uh, focus uh, in, the, in their videos. Right, and other than that, when they're not saying, yeah, we've killed this many people, blah, blah, um, what are they saying? Like, what's their message now to people that, you know, are still interested, I guess? Well, the message is clear, is that they're still uh, relevant, they're still deadly, and they are uh, more active than, than before. Uh, than say uh, several months ago, uh, and this is significant. For example, if you take Syria, uh, for uh, you know this example, recently the forces that fight the Assad regime actively uh, are not the usual Syrian rebels. The most active are really groups like you're very loyal to Al Qaeda or ISIS, mm-hmm. and ISIS wants to tell you, tell everyone in Syria, that they are the ones. Uh, they are truly fighting uh, Assad, and they are uh, committed to this fight. And they're they're going they're going back now. And one of the observation uh, observations that we we had was basically that uh, they're trying to organize. Uh, they were trying to emphasize the kind of attacks and kind of targets uh, they have these days. So they are focused their attacks on Shia militias in places like Deir Zor. Uh, from Deir Zor all the way to uh, Homs, uh, you know that kind of ungoverned or undergoverned space uh, in the desert uh, desert areas. And uh, next uh, are the Kurds, and then uh, people who work uh, with the Kurds and with the Syrian regime. Uh, so they're becoming more uh, focused, it seems, on uh, the kind of targets that uh, they think most Syrians would like to be to see being targeted uh, and that means the Assad regime they run in forces and uh, to a lesser degree or far lesser degree uh, Kurdish forces in eastern Syria you're from there is all right that's right yeah. yeah and there seems to be a lot of uh, activity around there I keep seeing these SDF posts where they're saying like yeah they've sent in these special forces and the Americans still seem to be there how realistic is it that there there's that is kind of a hotbed is that true uh, yes, I think so. So, um, first of all, uh, these attacks never went away completely. So mm. ISIS always attacked in different parts of uh, uh, the territory that they once controlled. Uh, that you know, it fluctuated, but like at low levels, low, uh, low low intensity attacks rather than kind of high, uh, large scale and coordinated. Uh, but their zone is very interesting because if you go back to the early uh, days. Of the Syrian conflict, Derzor was one of the one of one of the earliest provinces to be mostly liberated, quote unquote, by the rebels, uh, kind of when they expelled the Assad regime from these areas. And uh, jihadists, uh, jihadists had um, a presence in Derzor, but that presence was never uh, uh, dominant at the height of the, their power there. Uh, Jabhat al-Nusra uh, controlled almost like three towns, like maximum three towns, two or three towns, that they were, where they were dominated, but they were not in control of the of the of the whole uh, of the whole towns or these specific three towns. Uh, which is a, kind of an interesting point to make because if you trace that and see that Deir Zor uh, never had uh, kind of never was a hotbed for jihadism. Even at the height of the power of Jabhat al-Nusra, Jabhat al-Nusra uh, one time was uh, the biggest, uh, had had the kind of the most powerful branch of, uh, for itself in Syria, in Deir Zor, uh, rather than in the north or in the south. Uh, 
it sort of had three branches at one point in 2013 or 2012. Uh, but its biggest was uh, in Derzor. But despite that fact, they were not as uh, dominant in Derzor. So the dominant forces were the rebel forces. Now, when ISIS took over, uh, seized these massive areas in both Iraq and Syria, Derzor had to be captured not uh, from within, but from uh, through intense fighting from outside. So until ISIS took over Derzor, it had never been able to establish a grassroots level for uh, a grassroots support for itself on the local level in Iraq, uh, in Derzor. Uh, but it had to basically come after it took over Mosul uh, with massive guns and massive weapons and had to defeat uh, the rebel forces uh, in their zone and expel them by force. And only after that, they started to kind of recruit some people. Uh, and uh, uh, there's a big lesson there that this, this their zone, this uh, province, that had never had uh, local and grassroots level uh, support for uh, for an organization uh, became later the last area to be recaptured by uh, by the U.S. led coalition from uh, from ISIS, and ISIS fought till the end there and fought uh, you know uh, hard there. And, and I think there's a there's a whole book that can be written essentially on on just their zone and and how an organization can become a menace. Uh, despite the grassroots support. It's quite a tribal area as well, isn't it? It is, and uh, the vacuum, again, is the key word here. Uh, Deir Zor was, even when uh, the rebel forces controlled uh, most of it, uh, never really uh, got the attention from the Syrian opposition and the uh, world as a kind of a centre for the opposition, because they were focused on Aleppo, mm. Damascus, Dara, Homs, you know, these are the capitals of their revolution. Their resort was remote. Uh, they used it for uh, kind of making money. So Jesh al-Islam had a branch there to make money and then focus on Damascus. Harar Sham, the same thing. Jabhat al-Nusra, the same thing. Uh, so I think negligence, and obviously the geography. Uh, the Syrian regime was in control of Hasak next door. Uh, it was, uh, was in control of the city of Deir Zor. So the province, which is... Uh, the, you know, the rebel-controlled areas in the province were mostly rural areas, the tribal areas that you're talking about. And on the other side, Iraq was controlled by the Iraqi government. And, and you know, so uh, the vacuum uh, helped ISIS to kind of, when it came back, uh, didn't have that local uh, resistance, especially after expelled, after the rebels were expelled and after that kind of, uh, you know, locals were left alone essentially yeah yeah um so what 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 level do you think the isis comeback is going to get to do you think that we'll start seeing actual towns taken over and held for a short time as we did when isis first started rolling over places in syria and iraq um or do you think it's just going to stick to these kind of guerrilla tactics but but obviously growing so if you asked me that question uh, several months ago, I would say ISIS is far from being uh, back and it won't be back anytime soon. Mm. Uh, over the past two months, I think uh, the likelihood of ISIS becoming a true menace and threat to both Iraq and Syria is uh, exponentially uh, you know, more uh, like greater than, uh, than several months ago. What I mean by that is really uh, it depends. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, ISIS can, it has the potential now uh, to become uh, in control of massive areas, not massive as in like all of Iraq and Syria, but like uh, significant areas uh, in Iraq and Syria. I don't think they will do that. I don't think ISIS now, even if it can, uh, will attempt to take over uh, areas and, and stay in control of them. Uh, this is not their, their limits and the limitations of them and they don't they know that this is not the right time for them to to do that uh, they learned from some of the lessons of the caliphate they haven't abandoned their attempts to, to control territory but it's uh, th at this phase they're uh, they're focused almost exclusively on insurgency and insurgency tactics so by the end of this year if and this is my argument if the current trends continue uh, till the end of the year, I think ISIS will become almost irreversible. I ISIS gains would become almost irreversible 
without uh, much deeper um, engagement and involvement by the US-led coalition. Uh, so they had to basically go back on the ground uh, and fight ISIS back. Remember, just a few months ago, after the killing of uh, the Iranian general Qasem Soleimani, mm. the Americans, uh, with the tension of, uh, with the Iraqi forces, but also because of other reasons before that, uh, they had to withdraw from uh, very important uh, bases in western Iraq and in, in central Iraq, uh, uh, you know, near Qayyar and all the way to uh, Anbar. Uh, they had to withdraw from, to abandon these uh, bases and focus, especially in, in um, uh, bases they cannot defend very well. So the, the bases are not well defended and they uh, retreated into uh, some uh, bases that were more significant, uh, but also better protect protected. Uh, so the involvement is becoming less likely, but ISIS rise is becoming more likely at the same time. And this uh, tension essentially uh, leads me to think that ISIS will continue to come back and will continue to rise in uh, to go back to the beginning, on the way back, but uh, but it really depends on whether the Iraqis will resolve their tension, will resolve their problems with the Americans, and uh, invite the Americans back to kind of become more involved in in the areas where ISIS is is becoming more uh, active uh, recently. So uh, I think that's kind of the dilemma that uh, the Iraq faces today. In Syria, we have a similar situation where uh, you know after you know October when uh, Donald Trump announced that the Americans would leave uh, Syria, and he did that abruptly and without any plan, that caused a lot of confusion uh, uh, in eastern Syria that led the Kurds to run uh, to the Russians and the Assad regime to prevent the Turks from uh, invading Syria. Uh, remember, after the Donald Trump's uh, decision into Syria, so that chaos, essentially, or the uh, confusion that happened after that, also uh, opened doors for ISIS uh, and created new gaps, uh, new problems. The Americans had to basically reverse uh, their decision, and but they they still lost some of the areas to the Russians and the Assad regime, and uh, they became more concentrated on the border, the border areas from Kamashli all the way to Tenf. Uh, mostly really Al-Bukamal and then uh, part of Tenf. Mm. So all these things are making it harder for the engagement that we had uh, seen before uh, before October 2019. Wow. So that was a, almost a gift to them. Um, what about the Russians? Where do they stand in all this? What, have they said anything about you know what they're doing about the possible return of ISIS? I don't really keep track of what they've got to say, to be honest. So... Uh, for the Russians and the Assad regime, ISIS is not the biggest uh, problem. Mm. Uh, also, because ISIS is not really uh, that active in, in areas controlled by the Assad regime, uh, the only areas that the ISIS kind of uh, fights and has these occasional clashes with the Assad regime is that area uh, around Palmyra, which is what we call the Homs countryside or the Syrian, uh, Syrian desert. Mm. And that's where. Iranian militias operate not really, uh, the Assad regime, but mostly, uh, you know, the, the Iranian. I mean, the Assad regime is present there, but mostly uh, Iranian forces. So Russia uh, is focused almost exclusively on regime-held areas, um, meaning the areas secured by the Assad regime on the economic problems and managing these political fallouts that are happening every now and then, but also trying to steer uh, the Assad regime's. Uh, steer the Assad regime into kind of a direction that Russia uh, thinks is the best way uh, to secure the Assad, uh, secure the, the, the Syrian regime. And uh, in addition to that, obviously, the second uh, focus of uh, Russia is managing that relationship with uh, Turkey in the northwest of Syria. Um, it's uh, back and forth between the two countries, but recently they agreed on a ceasefire and that's more permanent than previous ones, at least, you know, uh, I think, I mean, analytically, I think it seems like it's, it has a, 
a longer shelf life than uh, than previous ones uh, because uh, the areas reached uh, very close to areas that Turkey views as uh, immensely strate- strategic and critical uh, for its um, fight against the Kurds, but also uh, to secure its borders. Yeah. Um, and lastly, what do you think? I mean, I know it's it's not really up to you to decide, but I mean, you've done all this this work and everything on it. What do you think needs to be done to actually stop this re reemergence of ISIS? Yeah, see, that's a question. It's an easy question, uh, but uh, hard at the same time. Uh, easy in the sense that uh, you just uh, you know uh, stay in Syria and Iraq uh, as a U.S.-led coalition. Uh, make sure that ISIS continues to be uh, kept. You know, kept dead and kept under pressure until there is a political settlement uh, at some point. And I think over the past few years, uh, the Kurdish-led uh, forces in eastern Syria uh, had an opportunity to uh, basically create local structures away from the Assad regime. I think the lives of people there are better off. Uh, people are better better off uh, than. Uh, places controlled by the Assad regime in eastern Syria. I'm not talking about Damascus and mm. elsewhere, but in, in the areas that have seen conflict before. Um, so th- I, that's that's, a, that's the only way. I, I'm in support of kind of uh, supporting this idea of decentralized uh, governance uh, and um, uh, staying there until that uh, there's a political settlement with Damascus. So it's not a fraction of Syria or partition of Syria. Uh, so it's not a fracture of Syria or partition of Syria. It's really just helping the locals to fill uh, that, uh, you know, security vacuum on the ground and making sure that uh, there are local forces in control of these areas. Uh, it's a hard uh, uh, question at the same time because I know the political realities in places like Washington, London, and elsewhere mm. uh, are not are not conducive. They're not um, uh, in support of something like this. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, Hassan, is there anything else you want to say before we uh, wrap this up? No, I think we said uh, we we kind of spoke about everything. Just the idea that uh, I think the next few months are very critical for uh, for ISIS. Uh, there is so much happening in both Iraq and Syria, eclipsed by the by the coronavirus. But I think there's some you know interesting trends happening on the ground. Definitely. Um, thank you very much, mate. Where can people uh, read your report and follow your work? Uh, so I work for the Center for Global Policy, so uh, cgpolicy.org and uh, Twitter. Which are Twitter? HX uh, Hassan. Brilliant. Thank you very much, mate. Appreciate that. Thanks, thank man. You Hassan Hassan speaking about the possible re-emergence of ISIS in Iraq and Syria. Definitely check out his work. He's very interesting. Got a lot of good uh, analysis on the situation out there. If you like what we're doing, please do consider supporting us on Popular on Popular on Patreon.com/slash/PopularFront for five quid a month. Well, five dollars a month, you get bonus episodes. For ten, you get access to the community Discord, narrated articles all sorts of stuff um yeah patreon.com slash popular front thank you very much to all the patrons keeping us going the more we go on patreon the more popular front there is like no one is out here buying fucking fancy stuff it's all going back in you're seeing there's documentaries all sorts um thank you to our sponsors this episode was sponsored by defensepost.com defense with an s go there for regular updates on the world in conflict Also sponsored by Oracle Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, USA. They're an independent coffee shop selling only fair trade products. Go and see them at 3875 Southwest Bond Avenue, 97239. Tell them Popular Front send you. They will be reopening when all this coronavirus shit uh, has passed or has at least got a little bit better. Uh, The episode is also sponsored by Black Triangle, an independent company manufacturing their own low-key self-defense tools. Go and check them out on Instagram at Black Triangle Group or their website blktriangle.com tell them popular front send you they might nice you might get a discount something like that uh, the episode's also sponsored by our mates at fengtings uh, go to instagram.com slash feng.tings t-i-n-g-z or z if you're an american um, they do custom balfeng radio sets they do like uh, customization with uh, you can get like 
camouflage bow thing you get extra antennas cattail antenna big battery all sorts also a lot of uh, education in terms of how to use the bow thing how to use uh, low frequency radio stuff i got one it's cool it's very interesting uh yeah thing dot tings t-i-n-g-z follow us on instagram at popular.front or me at jake underscore hanrahan h-a-n-i-h-a-n it's the same uh, on twitter jake underscore hanrahan our uh, twitter for popular front is at popular front co couldn't get any other fucking username so there you go um it's the same as the website popularfront.co that's basically the landing page you'll see everything there podcast episodes all the articles uh if you go to popularfront.shop you can get our merchandise support us that way to us on youtube youtube.com slash popular front or just go to popularfront.tv um yeah so thank you very much to the following patreons without you this would not be possible uh they are adam berg snyder amy rupert andrew hurley anthony kabarak axel iverson azad bill wilson b-r-e-n-8-6 if you want a name in there just make sure you put it on in the uh in the on the patreon brian mclaughlin trey nance chad walker charlie chris Christina Rivetti, Christopher Martin, Clayton Tanner, DR, Dan Donham, Daniel Shearer, Degenerate Zero Alpha, Diana Gorvanek, Don Wayne, Emiliano, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, Fragile Feeling, Frank Austin, Hugo Newski. Again, if I've said that wrong, please do let me know. Uh, James from the Discord, Joanne Stocker from the Defence Post, Josh, Jungle King Birapan, Lawrence Abrams, Liam Williams, Louis Nicastro, Maxwell Burke, Maurice Zimbal, Ari, Olin Thorne, Patrick Bronte, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did and Defiance, Cubal, Rubicon, Ryan Sandercock. Thank you, been with us from the very start. Skatoon Music, Sebastian from the Discord, Surishe Hawazi, Stephen Davila, uh, uh, Tony Bin and Vida Provost. Thank you very much. Uh, like I said, if you want to support us on the Patreon, patreon.com slash popularfront. If you're on the $30 tier, please do feel free to suggest people as much as you like. Um, I mean, anyone can suggest, but they're the ones that will you know, always get looked at first. Um, and if you want to change your name on the, the Patreon, uh, if you're on the 30 tier and you want to get the uh, you know your name changed on the on the call out, do let me know or just change it on the, the Patreon. So that's that, yeah. But yeah, thank you very much. Patreon.com/slash/popularfront keep us going. Or if you don't like Patreon, um, go to popularfront.co/support. Music in this episode, the intro was by Home and the outro is by Sam Black, aka Son of Old. Go and listen to his music at samblackpf.com and tell him to upload more stuff from the Popular Front podcast to his SoundCloud if you want.